Christmas is going to be here shortly. I trust that you're out doing your Christmas shopping. Many of you may go to the mall for Christmas shopping. I prefer to just put, you know, add to cart and allow it to show up at my door. I consider Amazon Santa Claus. And, um, but many of you may go, go to the mall. You enjoy shopping in public. And if you, if you bumped into me in, in the mall, which is unlikely but possible, if you bumped into me in the mall and I was just walking along like I am right now, would there be anything about my appearance, anything in my possession that would seem especially abnormal to you? You might think, well, he's carrying a Bible. That would be a little odd to carry a Bible through, through the mall. Probably nothing that would necessarily stand out, though. So I was just walking through the mall as is. <clears throat> nothing would throw you off. Nothing about my appearance. Nothing about my demeanor that would be especially interesting. But if I visited you not in a mall but in a jail cell, and you were behind bars, and I showed up just like this, you'd probably suddenly notice two things. You'd notice that I brought a Bible, and you'd also notice that I have a key in my hand. And especially if this was the key to your jail cell, (laughs) you'd suddenly probably be quite appreciative that I had shown up to visit you for the great escape, right? When, When we are living in times of peace, normalcy, just going about our daily business, Christmas shopping in the mall and our places of employment, we may not be aware of the fact that we are in fact captive to sin, that we are vulnerable to disease, that we are could be on the cusp of a full-blown crisis in life. But when crises hit, when we're, we're locked up, for example, if someone were to show up and visit you in a prison cell and you're locked up and suddenly the bottom has dropped out of your world and you are incarcerated and your liberty has been taken away, I could bring much hope just by showing up with a tiny little key, which otherwise would be a rather benign object. You probably wouldn't be paying a whole lot of attention to. And I want to use this key as an analogy for our commission as Christians. We have the word of God, which is the key to eternal life, which is the key to rescue, which is the key to perspective, which is the key to fearlessness, and faithfulness in Christ. And here's the thing. We've always had it in our possession. But the reality is most people don't pay much attention to the word of God or the man or woman of God when things are fine, when life is benign. But when we find ourselves in a crisis, when we find ourselves on the verge of death, when we suddenly become aware of how vulnerable and fragile we are, people tend to listen in, don't they? And I would encourage you as Christians to look for those opportunities. Look for the opportunities that God puts in your path to be peace in the storm. To help people to find liberty and freedom in Christ when they have found themselves captive to sin and Satan. In Acts 27, we're going to see this message loud and clear. And here's what I want to present to you today. And then we'll just kind of unpack it and mull it over for for the remainder of, of the sermon. And that is this, that your faith in crises is your testimony. Your faith in crises is your testimony. We are called to be peace in the storms of life, peace in the crises of life, peace at the funerals of our world, peace in the economic woes and challenges of our world, Peace in pandemics, peace in economic downturn. We are called to be peace and we can live peacefully because we have resurrection hope and we know 
who we are, how we're created, and where we're going. So in Acts 27, the backstory is Paul had spent several years ministering in Asia. He goes down to Jerusalem. He's warned not to go. As a result, he goes through a series of trials, legitimate trials and kangaroo courts. Finally, he is put on a boat at great expense to the Roman government, and he's shipped off to see Caesar in Rome. He had the right to ask for an audience with Caesar as a Roman citizen. So now we have an extended discussion about his trip. Why would the word of God care to take so much effort to give us an entire chapter outlining his trip across the Mediterranean? It starts out rather average, and it's meant to be read as such, rather average, more or less uneventful. But it leads up to a catastrophe, and we see God intervening, and we see Paul being peace in the storm to his generation. Verse 1 reads, this is Acts 27. And when it was decided that he should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort, Julius. And embarking in a ship of, I will allow you to read that word in your own head, rather complicated word, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, up till this point in time, there's nothing especially unusual about this. You might be thinking, this is kind of boring, actually. And it's sort of supposed to be. This is just, this is geography. This is points in a map. This is a trip that Paul's taking in a boat. It is framed up as history. <clears throat> you can check these points out on a map. You could trace and follow Paul's journey across the Mediterranean. Nothing especially unusual. That's the point. Nothing unusual. No crises yet. No global catastrophe yet. Nothing particularly worrisome yet. It's just an average series of events. They're going from one place to the next place to the next place. But we get a hint that there's a little bit of a problem in verse 4 because the winds were against them. And that increases a little bit. But again, nothing particularly out of unusual, out of the ordinary. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, to Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandra sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, coasting along with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. The Bible, by the way, reads as history. On occasion, you'll have an unbeliever say, oh, the Bible's a myth. It's a fairy tale. Well, if it's a myth or a fairy tale, fairy tale it's not written very well because it's not written in the genre of myth. It's not written in the genre of a fairy tale. It's actually written in the genre of history. Points on a map, facts, trips, the benign circumstances of life are laid out. 
This series of points on a map remind the reader that much of life is lived in the everyday travels and doldrums of life with a few minor difficulties thrown in for good measure. It wasn't the worst of the worst. They're trying to sail across the ocean. No storm, no Leviathan rearing its head out of the sea to snatch them, no Moby Dick. A lack of wind, bit of a problem, kind of like your life and my life on a daily basis, more or less humdrum, more or less normal, some difficulties, some challenges, not the kind of thing that's necessarily going to drive us to a prayer meeting, not the kind of circumstances that you would think would bring about mass conversions, normal life, average life with a little bit of difficulty thrown in for good measure. No crisis, just run-of-the-mill, minor obstacles. Paul's treated kindly. It's nice to hear. The winds weren't great. Okay. Slow sailing. Not exactly earth-shattering. The biggest difficulty that the ship was experiencing was a lack of wind. Life was boring, but it certainly wasn't dangerous. Not yet, anyway. Now, Paul is the man of God in the narrative, and he has insight given to him by the Holy Spirit of God. And he warns his fellow seafarers of pending peril, but they don't listen. Why? Because in times of peace, God tends to be ignored. You know what it's like. You're chatting with your neighbor, you're chatting with your coworker, there's a bit of money in the bank, your marriage is okay. Yeah, there's a few little highs and lows, but it's more of a, a ripple than a tidal wave of problems. And people just tend not to pay that much attention to God when life is more or less normal. Prophets generally attend to the bread lines during times of peace, the unemployment lines during times of peace. When folks believe they can manage life, God tends not to be as popular. You've seen this in our own church. A couple of years ago, there wouldn't have been an empty seat in the house. Now we're down a couple hundred people because the crisis is over. It's back to the normal, apparently, we're all looking for. People flock into church during crisis, and they tend to be a little more inconsistent when life is more or less normal. The problem is we're easily lulled into a sense of false security. When the mortgage payment came out, it never bounced. When there's food in the cupboard, when there's a few bucks left over for vacation, when Bitcoin's up. And into that reality, which is more often than not the case, Christians can preach and they can warn people of the need to pay attention to God, to repent, to prepare for the next life, to warn them of pending chaos. And the number of listeners are usually minimal. But as with all of life, threats abound and they can rise rather quickly. The passage goes on to read, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over. 
Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So the sailors evidently were displaying a little bit of anxiety because the lack of wind hindered their forward progress. And the most dangerous time to be out sailing on the Mediterranean was from September through November. Nobody sailed December, January, February. It was off limits. Basically, you're, you're going to die if you're out there in, in, the, in the midst of winter. But September through November was a very dangerous, sketchy time. Some people still risked it, but it was a bad idea. Now, how do we know what time of year they were out on the Mediterranean? We know it because it said that the fast had already passed. The fast is a reference to the Jewish festival, Yom Kippur which varies a little bit in terms of its observance, but more or less it takes place around the mid, mid-October. So now we're, we're into late October. And September to November are not good times to be out in the Mediterranean. But they're out in the Mediterranean, and now things are getting a little bit risky. And Paul steps up and says, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we should rethink the circumstances. But... Still, they don't consult the Christian. Instead, they consult their experts, human experts. You don't need God when you have experts around after all, right? When you have professionals, you have people that know what they're doing to manage the crises of our world. Why would you need God when you have economic experts to fix economic problems? Why would you need God when you have health experts to fix health problems? Why would you need God when you have climate experts to fix weather problems? You don't need God when you have experts around you. And while there's nothing wrong with being an expert in a particular field of inquiry, there is something wrong if your expertise usurps the authority of Christ over your circumstances. Paul Warns, but verse 11 says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, the expert, and to the owner of the ship, the shareholder, than to what Paul said. Trust the expert. Don't pay attention to the man of God. Who needs a preacher when you have a professional at your disposal? And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority, oh, because the majority is always right. We've learned that through history, right? That's why we have democracy, which apparently is God's ordained model for human governance. No, it's not. But we almost hold it as if it's sacrosanct. Because we have this notion that the majority is right, or at least the majority's opinion is what should be followed. To the exclusion of God. This is a critical error. We've seen its problems arise in the West. The majority decided, we're told, to put out to sea from there on the chance. No consideration for God's sovereignty. There's no prayer meeting recorded. There's no call to repentance. There's no call to consider the man of God's words. Instead, they're relying upon the experts, 
majority opinion, and chance. Luck, essentially. Luck has no place in the Christian vernacular because we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in fatalism, blind fate. We believe in the sovereignty of God, and so we consult God on the decisions of life. But notice the language. We have the majority making the decision on the chance that somehow, somehow, they don't know what they're doing, but they're just hoping for good luck. They could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Well, this turns out to be a really, really bad idea. I'll just tip you off. It turns out to be a really, really bad idea. And now we have a scene depicted for us in the book of Acts that might as well have been out of the movie, The Perfect Storm. You ever seen that movie? Doesn't end well. The Perfect Storm suddenly rises up. The normal turns abnormal. The boring turns into hell on earth. And God permits an insurmountable crisis, which no expert or professional or soothsayer can fix, in order to save souls. He rocks their world, literally. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, false security, we call that, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So nobody's steering anything now. The circumstances are steering them. They're not steering the ship. They're just being blown helter-skelter. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. But it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope, all hope of our being saved was at last Abandoned. From boredom to catastrophe. A few details, which helps us to envision in our mind's eye the circumstances, the dire circumstances they were in. Ancient sailing ships typically would carry with them a small lifeboat, not unlike modern ships. But instead of housing the lifeboat on the main ship, it would be towed behind. And if storms rose up and it became you know, extra difficult on the sea to navigate. They would often bring that little escape vessel on board during bad weather. So tactic number one, we might lose our escape boat. We might as well bring it on board. Not a bad idea. Secondly, they had run ropes under the ship. You can imagine it's a wooden ship. So they run ropes under the ship and they basically tie the ship up tight to try to hold it together from being broken apart in the storm. Not a bad idea. These are both instances that show the professionalism and the expertise 
of the sailors on the ship. Third, they drop an unnamed piece of gear into the water. Now, this is likely a trailing anchor. So a trailing anchor would be a special anchor attached to a very long rope that in high seas they would release and it would float perhaps 100 or more feet out back of the ship. And it would provide, as the ship was being tossed up and down and side to side, a a bit of an elongated stabilizer, kind of a floating anchor of sort to try to stabilize the ship. Again, this is not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea to bring the boat on board. It's not a bad idea to tie up the hull of the ship. It's not a bad idea to send a trailing anchor out. All of these efforts illustrate the professionalism and the experience of these seafarers. But but did you notice it's still not enough? It's not enough. Sometimes you can do all the right things, make all the right decisions, consult the experts, and get good advice from them, and it's still not enough to rescue you from the imminent reality of death, destruction, disease, divorce, difficulty, whatever it might be that a broken world will throw at you. Sometimes you can do all the right things and you still cannot get out of the crises of life. Now take note that in all of this, the bringing on board of the, sh- the, 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 the lifeboat, the tying up of the, the hull, the release of the trailing anchor, there's no prayer meeting taking place yet. Nobody's flocking to church. They haven't consulted God. They're not paying attention to Paul. They don't care what the prophetic voice has to say. In fact, they add to their bag of tricks two more tactics, symbolic of their desperation. They dump the cargo overboard. They jettison the cargo. A pretty costly but calculated decision to make. Then they wait another day or two, and things still haven't improved. So they dump the ship's gear overboard. I'm sure the the main shareholder didn't appreciate that, but it had to be done. And still nothing helps. And at the tail end of this part of the narrative, we're told that their hope had dissipated and they were just continued to be thrown about in the open seas of life. This is symbolic of the man outside of Christ. Thrown about, tossed about by the circumstances of life. If you were to ask the average person, Out of all the ways that you could possibly die, what would be your least favorite way of dying? And most people say the same thing, drowning. There's something about drowning that's just kind of a terrifying thought. Going underwater, not being able to breathe. I mean, I'd rather be shot than drown. And yet time and time again in the word of God, We have pictures similar to this that illustrate life without Christ. This is a picture of life without Christ. They are hopeless, they are helpless, and they are in a hellish place. And that is life without Christ. When we rely upon our own strength, our own abilities, our own experts, our own wisdom, and we do not consult God, life is helpless, it's hopeless, and it's hellish. That's life without Christ. And you need to hear that. Because that's life without Christ. You can try to help yourself. You can hope and trust your luck. Pull out your lucky rabbit's foot. All you want. 
Try to bring about heaven on earth. Peace, man. Buy a Volkswagen van. Drive it to British Columbia. It still won't help. In the end, you will fail and you will be left to drift about aimlessly through the tumultuous seas and storms of life. Sometimes things will slow down a little bit and you'll just lack a little bit of wind. Other times you'll feel like you're literally about to die. That's life without Christ. That's life lived on our own steam and our own efforts and our own expertise, trusting in our own chances, hoping that somehow, somehow, the problem will just resolve itself. But here's what we learn from God's word. Crises create ministry opportunities. And this is where God's men and women step forward and hint, 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 look for these circumstances in people's lives and minister the gospel to people. Since they had been without food, verse 21 says, for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. You might think, Paul, that wasn't exactly the best timing on your part. I mean, talk about pouring salt on the wounds. It's not necessarily you know, the most appropriate timing. People are in a crisis and you're reminding them that they got there because of their own stupidity. But you know what? This is how the gospel begins. This is how the gospel begins. Before the good news, there's the bad news. The bad news is, is that you screwed up. The bad news is you didn't listen. The bad news is, is you did not listen to the man of God. You did not listen to the prophets of God. You tried to live your life by your own steam, your own efforts, your own intelligence, your own knowledge. And so in many respects, this is, this is a picture, an illustration of the gospel. It might seem unkind, but the gospel begins with ample reminders of our rebellious nature and our foolishness apart from Christ. That's the first point of the gospel, the bad news that we are the problem. He goes on to to say, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. God was going to shatter the boat that they were trusting in. So they literally had nothing left, nothing to give credit to but God alone. So even the boat wouldn't survive this storm. Paul is essentially preaching the sovereignty of God over all of life here. Not fatalism, not blind luck, not rescue by human expertise, but the sovereignty of God. And he's calling them to respond in faith as he had responded in faith to God's revelation of the outcome. This is the role of the Christian. If you're truly a bona fide, blood-bought, born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your job is to be peace in the storm. Not an emotional yo-yo like those around you. 
not living in chaos and frenzy and worry and anxiety, chewing your nails down to the flesh. You are to be peace in the storm. As Christians, we denounce fear. We denounce fatalism and we embrace faith no matter what the circumstances of life may throw our way. Climate change, we denounce fear, fatalism, and faithlessness. Pandemics, we denounce fear, fatalism, and faithlessness. Recessions, we denounce fear, fatalism, and faithlessness. Whether it's an economic crisis, a weather crisis, a health crisis, we are God's men and God's women. And our job is to be peace in the storm, to hold fast to our resurrection hope, to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to demonstrate our absolute unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God over all of life, no matter the outcome, in times of war, in times of famine, in times of pestilence. We are the peace in the storm. We are the body of Christ. We are Christ to the world and we have resurrection hope. That's our mission. Paul understood it. We must understand it. Paul lived it out. We must live it out. Not just clap for Paul because he was awesome, but be Paul to our generation. We see here that God does not rescue them from trouble. He rescues them through trouble. The false messages that we often hear from Paul today are, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your problems are going to be taken away. And then it doesn't happen and people abandon Christ. God doesn't rescue us from trouble at all points in time. He rescues us through it. He sanctifies us through famine, through pestilence, through war, through disease, through broken relationships, through death, not from through. It's a difference. And this is how God works in this episode and has worked time and time again throughout the history of the world. This goes on. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, you can imagine the horror of this experience. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A fathom is basically my height, so times basically six foot. So times that, you can do the math. A little farther on, they found, they took a, a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So the, the water's getting shallower and shallower. They're, they're getting near some land here. And fearing that he might run into the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So now they're praying. Now they're finally praying. We're starting to see some hope here, some elements of faith. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, the, the dinghy, the lifeboat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, in other words, they were trying to sneak away, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Well, that's a marked change from early on in the voyage, isn't it? Because before it's like, yeah, we don't really care what you have to say, Paul. We care about what the captain and the shareholder says. Now, all of a sudden, if you tell us to do it, we're going to do it. Because Paul was peace in the storm. They had nothing. They'd tried everything. They'd come to the end of their literal rope. 
And now suddenly God is working in their lives and they're listening to what God's man has to say. Notice that God permits them to float about. About even a little bit longer. But true to his word, he directs them nearer and nearer and nearer to land. In fear that they will abandon ship, the boat is cut away. They've now heard God's promises and now they're going to be tested on the rocky shores of the island they were headed toward. They, the question is, will they put faith in God's plan of rescue? Will they stay in the boat or will they die in a watery grave? I mentioned you earlier that God often uses water analogies in relationship to redemption and rescue and tempting throughout the word of God. We can think back, hearken back to Noah's boat. Why would I get on a boat when everything looks fine outside? God said, get on the boat. Well, very few people got on the boat, and they're the only ones that survived. And that boat became symbolic of God's redemption and God's rescue and God's prote- protection of his people, which in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told, corresponds to the suffering and obedience of Christ for the sacrifice and remission of our sins. Repeatedly, God tests his people who are facing the possibility of drowning in the word of God. God tests his people and asks them to trust him by getting onto a boat that Noah built. He later tests them again by saying, I want you to cross the Red Sea. I've parted the waters. I want you to cross the Red Sea so I can save, help you to be rescued from, from the Egyptians. You've read the story, but can you imagine standing there thinking, I'm dry. Why would I risk going out there and having the sea collapse in around me? But in faith, they crossed the Red Sea. Jonah, in a final moment of humility, permitted himself to be tossed overboard when the ship that he was on because of his own rebellious actions was in peril. Peter stepped out of a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. But Peter stepped out of a boat on the Sea of Galilee to trust in Christ. These men were told to remain on the boat as they're about to be battered to pieces. All through the word of God, God tests faith and demands that we obey him even when it doesn't make sense. Get onto the boat, cross the Red Sea, get thrown off the boat, step off the boat, stay in the boat. Time and time again, God tests his people to see if they will obey him. That's faith. And we now see faith springing to life in these otherwise godless seafarers that prior to this weren't interested in the things of God. Well, having obeyed, Paul now tends to their physical needs as well. He shows concern for their souls and he shows concern for their bodies which ministers of the gospel must do both. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you have continued in suspense and without food, having having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head 
of any of you. Now, before I read any further, I want you to recall to mind the Lord's Prayer. And there's a specific line in the Lord's Prayer, which I want to emphasize after I finish reading these verses. Let's see if you can guess it in advance. And when he had said these things, they took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. When they, had, when they all were encouraged and ate some food, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, this is the first time we're told how many people are on the boat. You may be picturing 20, 30. Look at how many people are on the boat. We were in all 276 persons. That's a, that's a lot of people on the boat. And when they had eaten enough, here it is, think the Lord's Prayer, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. We've had our meal. We're going to throw the rest of our food overboard. In the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread, not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread, not our annual bread. In other words, when we pray, we pray in a spirit of and posture of humility and anticipation that God will provide just enough for us to get through one more day. We don't need to worry about next week. So many Christians are riddled with anxiety and worry, chewing their fingernails down to the flesh. What if, what if this happens? What if that, what if, what if, what if? That's faithlessness. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for today. We pray for our daily bread. Why do we pray that? Because we're praying in faith. It's, it's a faith prayer to pray for our daily bread. And here we see faith. Once again, they, they were praying now. They cut the dinghy loose. That's two demonstrations of faith. The third demonstration of faith is they throw the wheat overboard. We've had our fill. We're going to trust. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. Strategically, it makes no sense. Better fill the pantry full of food. Better build a bomb shelter in the backyard. Better go out and buy as many guns as I can just in case. That's not faith. There was nothing wrong with having provisions. Joseph saved up provisions to provide for people in light of a pending famine. But not because he was worried about himself. He wanted to provide for others. These people throw it all overboard. They literally lay their lives on the line. We might picture an ancient sailing ship to be the size of maybe an aluminum boat that we'd fish in on the, on the river. This is a rather big vessel. One of the bigger ones, in fact. Apparently, some boats of this age could carry upwards of 600 people. The historian Josephus drowned when the ship he was on sank in the Mediterranean. And they say it carried 600 people. So we think of them as maybe you know, technologically ill-advanced, but they were a technologically advanced people to be able to build seafaring vessels that could house 300, 600 people. There was a lot of life on this boat. There was a lot of people whose lives were on the line. There was a lot of people who could have lost their lives if Paul hadn't told the truth and spoke the truth and trusted God. See how one man's faith can save lives? One man's faith can bring redemption to hundreds of people. Your faith 
Your choice to be peace in the storm can change the world for God's glory. You see how that works? It's easy to read the text and say, well, I already read it. I knew how it was going to end, so go Paul. But when you're in the middle of the crisis, you may be thinking, man, I don't know if this is a good idea. A lot of people relying upon me. You trust in the Lord. You rely upon the Lord. You speak the truth, and you allow God to take care of the rest. They ate just enough. They essentially put into practice, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. They're exercising faith. So here we have the Christian's faith being peace in the storm. That's our task. That's our mission, to be peace in the storm. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes, they tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Still striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So there's some bad people in the mix. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, this Roman official was pretty impressed by Paul's faith. And Paul's testimony leads not only to the rescue of all the sailors, but to the sparing of the lives of all the prisoners who are about to be snuffed out. Wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of wood. So even the breaking up of the ship was a good thing because now they had some lumber to float on. And so it was that all, notice all, all were brought safely to land. It's an amazing, it's an amazing account. Our God, surprise, surprise, comes through just as he promised. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Our God comes through just as he promised. The man of God is vindicated. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Lives are saved through the obedience of one who contradicted the majority. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Paul actually has resurrection hope and shows fearlessness. He denounces fatalism and he exercises faith. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Human life is always blessed through the obedience of God's people in some way, shape, or form. In the here and now. And of course, in the next, in the world to come. Souls are saved, but bodies are saved too, because God's plans, God's laws, God's promises. Surprise, surprise, work and bless the nations and bless communities. Everybody gets to shore safely as the ship is broken up on the rocks. The thing that they trusted in was no more. But the one that they previously did not trust in showed himself to be faithful and true, and still is, still is, even today. So to the Christians in the room, live fearlessly, denounce, worry, that's a sin. You can psychologize it all you want, it's a sin. Denounce anxiety, but my therapist says I have a chemical reason for it. It's a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Worry is a sin. 
Faithlessness is a sin, period. Think categorically. It's a sin. Oh, but it's my body chemistry. It's a sin. Oh, but I inherited it from my mom. It's a sin. I know what it's like to be anxious. I know what it's like to be faithless, and I know what it's like to worry a lot. I know what it's like to despair. More than any of you, I would ever share with any of you face-to-face. I know what it's like to have dark thoughts, and they are sins. And there's no hope, and there's no solution until we label them as such. That's faithlessness. So we choose faith over fear. We choose the sovereignty of God over a fatalistic view of life. And we let God be God. And when God is God, the storms of life suddenly are calm. And God brings great blessing and perspective and hope, and he equips us to live another day. Paul's trial wasn't over yet. He still had to to go to court. Be peace in the storm in a world that is filled with chaos and difficulty. And if you're sitting in this house today and you're not a Christian, I would beseech you to repent of your sin. The reason why you are lost, the reason why you are confused, the reason why your life is filled with chaos is because you're not trusting in the Savior of the world. Trust in him. Repent of your sin. Stop trusting in the experts, lashing the boat together, bringing the dinghy on board, setting the sail, whatever it might be, Trust in him, repent of your sins. Trust in him, believe in his promises and find life in the chaos and in the hellishness of this world. And he will grant you eternal life through the provision of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that conquered the chaos and conquered the death, the death that we should should face and grants us eternal life. 